Today we're going to be in 1 Timothy 3. And as you're turning there, we did see the last time that the Apostle Paul steps up his commands to the young Pastor Timothy of the beleaguered Ephesian church, and with each successive chapter brings more difficulties and more responsibilities, as we humorously saw last Sunday. But Timothy is also reminded that, A, he has the confidence of the Apostle Paul, the one who discipled him, and B, more importantly, is that he has help from God and, of course, the Holy Spirit. Now, understand that this is not limited to uh, some historical figures 2,000 years ago. This is also at our fingertips. Unfortunately, today in our age of technology, oftentimes our iPhones are at the edge of our fingertips when we really have the ability to call on God. We rely on our medicine, we rely on, and those are not bad things, we rely on our technology, but sometimes in this country we are so well taken care of, so, live so much better than those in countries across the seas that we tend to rely on things and not God. And we'll come back to that later. Um, Hymenius and Alexander, I found it humorous. Uh, these guys were uh, in, inscribed um, indelibly in sacred scripture for the last 2,000 years. Uh, and so this morning, if you think that you have problems, uh, at least you're not Hymenius or Alexander, who are the poster children for departing from the faith and heretics for the last 2,000 years. So it, think somebody's always got it worse than you. And today, we're going to look at quality Christians. Now, this is really about vetting of church leadership, but it's something that we all should aspire to be. You know, we can't look at this and just say, well, that's for the leadership. Again, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. The question is, are we using it or not? Are we using him? Are we staying close to him? Are we letting him speak to us? Or are we just meandering as believers? Okay, so that's the question we have to ask ourselves. So starting with the first verse, it says, the Apostle Paul says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, before we get into the leadership terms and titles, I want to address the first thing that he says in this chapter. If a man desires the position of a bishop or an overseer, he desires a good work. Now, the word in Greek is ergon, where we get the word erg from in science in our English, which is a unit of energy over a distance. So make no mistake, being in leadership is, if we're doing it right, is a labor, often called a labor of love. And it's work. And understand that it's just not for the faint of heart. And if your desire, and this is why I had the teens sit in as well today, if your desire, I want you to keep this stuff on the radar. If your desire is for a position of leadership, if you think God has called you to be a pastor or a deacon or a deaconess, I'd like you to see me about that and ask me, how do I get there? So even if you're 16 years old and you say, you know, just keep it on your radar because it's amazing how God called even teenagers in the Bible and he, he gave them amazing abilities and supernatural uh, gifts to perform great works in his name. So it's not limited to just a select group. And I would say this, that um, this church is growing, and certainly we're going to need the help here as well. So this letter couldn't have come at a better time. Now let's look at the distinctions among the leadership. Once we go through that, I'll go through some of the qualities. Number one, bishop. We saw that. Overseer. This term has been abused over the centuries. If we think of a bishop now, we think more of a lord. Well, they're way above us. Uh, the lord over the people instead of a servant. 
Historically, bishops would represent their local churches when they would get together and ratify church uh, doctrines. Today, we can look at a bishop in its context as a regional pastor of a denominational church or a senior pastor of an autonomous church. So I'm actually liking the, the ring to bishop, and I'm hoping that from now on everybody calls me the bishop. I'm just kidding. I say that facetiously because that's what these terms have become. And that's not what the Bible points to. This is an administrative position. We need to understand the difference between a definition and a badge of authority. See, with the definition, the first one is, is more proper. I define the term. I don't need a title. I don't need a name tag. I don't need my name engraved in marble over the doorway. I don't need my picture on the side of a church van. And some churches have this stuff. Everybody needs to know that this is the bishop. And here's his face in case you forget. However, a badge of authority is something where we lord it over others. And then we miss the point. We miss the point. If I'm defining in what I do in my actions, I don't really need that title necessarily. Number two, a pastor also means shepherd. This indicates more of a spiritual intimacy with the church body, as well as a protective nature. Now, this word is also used in 1 Peter. The pastor is concerned with the spiritual health of the congregation and also to protect against false doctrine and cults, which is really synonymous in a lot of ways with bishop. And we're going to see a lot of overlap here. The third one that's used in the scripture is elder. When we cover Titus, we're going to see he uses the term elder. The Greek word is presbyteros, where we get presbyterian from, or rule by the elders. That's a form of church government. Now, it literally means older man, but for the purpose of church leadership, what we're more looking for is experience and maturity related, because not every gray-haired person uh, has that maturity. So we understand that there needs to be a little little bit of time in the faith. So in other words, if you're going to counsel, the idea is if you're going to counsel and you're having a personal tragedy in your life, that when you sit across a church elder, you want to make sure that they didn't just get saved last year. You're looking for someone with a little bit of experience. It's important. Four, deacon. Now this word is transliterated, which means the Greek word is almost completely preserved in the English. That's what transliterated means. And the word is diakonos, where we get the word deacon in the English from. Now, diakonos really means a servant. And that's something that ecclesiastical leadership needs to always understand is that we're servants first. And we learn from Christ before his crucifixion that he washed his fellow disciples' feet. So we understand that leadership is a servant leadership. Now, the only real difference between a deacon and the other positions is that the deacon doesn't need to know how to formally teach the word. He should know the word. He should live the word. And we'll cover that but he doesn't need to necessarily formally be able to teach it. So we can look at someone like an usher who's in good standing with the church for many years. This person would be considered a deacon. Now, I've written letters, uh, character references. Uh, Some will come to me. They've been in the church for a while, and they say, you know, I'm really good going for this position, and I need a character reference. And I'll write the reference, and I may say to them, you know, I don't have a problem putting down that you're a deacon in the church. And they're like, wow, Really? I don't have, you know, you don't, get, because you live it, because you've been uh, uh, faithfully serving for so many years, you are a deacon. So they get a little surprised, but they've really earned it. So let's go into some of these characteristics. Number two, or verse two, a bishop then must be blameless. 
the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? What we see here is two things as we go through this list is qualities and qualifications. And they're very similar, and there are some nuances between both words, but the first one, qualities, is what you are. The second one, qualifications, is what you do based on what you are. You see the difference there. Now, I went, as I studied some of these terms, I went into the Greek language, and I went to, to find a wide semantic range of some of these words so that we can get the broadest scope possible of what the Lord is looking for in these positions. So let's start with the first one, blameless. Wow. <laughs> wow, blameless, gee. That doesn't mean sinless. Be careful with that. Because we'd all be in a lot of trouble. None of us would be teaching if we had to be sinless. So blameless. That means that there's not a current accusation that could be made against you. There's not something currently that the body could point to and say, you know, there's a scandal here. There's something going on. You know, this guy's sneaking out at night and his wife doesn't know where he is. So blameless. Now, pre-Christ doesn't count. So whatever you did before the cross, the apostle Paul killed people. He gave his consent for Christians to be killed, and then he becomes one. Major change, major turnaround, major example of grace. And that's what we have to understand in this blameless word is, believe it or not, there's an undertone of grace. Now, grace we understand starting with salvation. You really understand grace when you realize that as a sinner, as we look at the law, as we can't keep the law, and if we think we can and we think about in our minds uh, what we do in our thought life, we're still breaking the law, so it's still considered breaking God's law. However, he gave his son. He sent his son into the world that whoever believes on Jesus Christ would not perish but have everlasting life. So from that point forward, we become justified by faith in Jesus. There's grace right there. You know, some of us maybe have done worse things than others, but all you have to do is break one link in the chain of the law and you fall. You, know, you fall off the precipice into hell that awaits those who are eternally separated from God. So grace, salvation is grace. Number two is God says, I don't care what happened before the cross. If you're truly saved, you know, I want to bring you up to this level. These are the spiritual gifts I've given you. So grace is that unmerited favor. Not only do we not get what we deserve in justice, but now he rewards us. It's pretty impressive. That's why the father had to turn his face from Christ on the cross, the father and the son. Because in that moment, he bore the sins of the whole world and the father couldn't look on that. So in, in an instance, he, he switched identities. We took Christ's perfect identity, and he took our sinful identity, and now we're free. So we understand that uh, message of grace. Two, the husband of one wife. Now, it's kind of sad that this even has to be said. But when we go back to the patriarchs in the Old Testament, in the law, Deuteronomy 17, 17, God said, don't multiply wives. You should just be one man and one woman, and together they become one flesh. However... Many of them did that, and it only caused problems in their life, as you could imagine. We also know that on, in the first century, if we study Greek and Roman culture, that it was accepted to have a wife and have a mistress or have somebody on the side. 
We don't accept it. We certainly don't accept it in the church. And it was something the Apostle Paul said, you can't do this. Now, even in our recent time, over the last several centuries, uh, Mormonism and Islam, in their own tenets, in their own law, they even said that there can be a multiplication of wives. The Apostle Paul is saying, absolutely not. Go back to the original design between one man and one woman. Now, some take this to the point, and I respect their argument. Some denominations say, well, what this means is if a person has ever been divorced, uh, they can't serve as a pastor or an elder. I don't take that view because that gets to be a little bit tricky. You see, I know that in New Jersey, uh, if you're trying to not want to be divorced and your spouse is hell-bent on divorcing you, um, you really can't fight it. I've seen it happen. The person can be free. So you might be on the losing end of someone looking to get divorced. And some, when they come to Christ, their spouses don't like it. They're unsaved spouses. And it, it gets on their ner nerves so much that they're looking to end the relationship. So I don't take that view personally. However, there are some that make a mockery out of marriage. And, and that's something that needs to be looked at. The third point is temperate, which means vigilant, circumspect, not too hot, not too cold. This person keeps their cool, they're balanced. And it's something that we all would like to see in a person and look forward to being that. Now, as a new believer, uh, if one day I saw my pastor and he was fine, and the next day I walked into his office and he had his head in his hands and he said, the pressure is too great, I can't take it anymore, the walls are closing in, that might weird me out. So, you know, in church leadership, you want someone who's balanced, who's temperate. That's important. Uh, there's highs and lows in ministry, but we have to try the best we can to stay even keeled. Not always easy, but temperate. Four, sober-minded, someone who's self-controlled, in touch with reality, has a serious attitude towards the calling of God. Now, that doesn't mean, let me tell you something, I never laughed so hard <laughs> until I became a believer. I was freed. I was freed from my sin. God gave me a new lease on life. And even as a pastor, when my leaders come together and we have leadership meetings, we laugh. You know, we have fun. We serve with joy. You know, we roll. I mean, sometimes I'm in my office and I hear the usher's room is the next uh, room over through the walls. I could hear them laughing, belly laughing. But, you know, it's appropriate humor. We're serious about our calling of God, but we, we, we can be light. You know, we can lighten up a little bit. You know, there's no reason to be a sourpuss. Five, good behavior, orderly, organized, steady as she goes, not moved. Now, this is for the younger men to see an older man in this type of position and want to be like them. They want to emulate that person. A lot of this has to do with example. What is our example like? Now, the sixth word, hospitable. The Greek word is philoxenos. I like to play with etymology. I like to play with the nature of words. Um, philoxenos, the X is really a XI, and it has the X sound. Now, there's a word in English. Okay, let's go to the English. That's the opposite. That is xenophobia, where the XI becomes a Z sound, and what it means, xenophobia, it means the fear of strangers. But philoxenos means the love of strangers. So hospitable means that the person's not a loner. They're not a recluse. They're not unfriendly. I, I knew a, a gentleman who left the church because the church made it clear uh, that when new people walked in, that they would stare at the person. They didn't want new people. It was like a closed church, which I find very odd because it doesn't represent the Great Commission. It doesn't re represent to be a light of Christ to the surrounding area. And there's times where if I see a new person, 
and I'm talking to a mature Christian, I'll say, you know what, can you hang on a second? That person's new. I want to go over and say hello. I don't always get a chance to, but it's the desire of me and the leaders, and we love. We say, hey, I met a new person today, and this is their name, and this is their children. So the love, the love of strangers, hospitable. The next one, number seven, is able to teach. Well, we should be teaching in word and in deed. We covered the deed. Now let's go to the word. If you're a church leader, you have to be able to teach. I've heard in some churches teaching pastors as separated from pastors who don't teach. That's superfluous, a teaching pastor. If you're a pastor, you need to teach, period. You need to know how to, and and you can learn how to do that. Uh, I'm blessed because I have good men that surround me, and when another uh, man in, in this fellowship who's a leader takes the pulpit and they sound great, I'm not jealous. I think it's awesome because I'm getting fed, and it shows that I'm making good decisions and choosing someone who can really feed the body. So for me, it's a win-win no matter how it goes. Uh, So that's a blessing. Number eight, not given to wine. The word is paraoinos, which means to be associated with alcohol or with wine. Now, what does that mean? That means when when you see me or you hear my name, you always picture me with a drink. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Pastor Joe has always got a drink in his hand. Okay, that would be a problem. Before the cross, maybe you could make that association. But post-cross, no. Now, it goes without saying that the person should not be a drug abuser either. Anything that can alter your mind where you can't make good judgment. So paraoinos. Now, I'll tell you the truth. I don't like the word, and I'm going to say it. We're not politically correct here. I don't like the term disease for someone who's a drunkard or a drug addict. Call it what it is. Now, it might sound harsh, but think about this. Watch my reasoning here. If you call meningitis is a disease. You don't look to get meningitis, and you don't look to inject something into, through your skin so it can affect your, you know, your, your, your system. Uh, if you say to someone, it's a disease, you can't help it. Every time you put a bottle to your lips, you can't help it. What you're doing is you're pigeon, pigeonholing them into a corner in society saying that you can't help yourself and this is what you're doomed to for the rest of your life. So I'm actually looking out for the person who's struggling with that. It's not a disease, period. If you're using your will to get drunk or high, it's not a disease. I don't apologize for that. Um, I would say this, that you know I'm not a drinker, not because I can't control myself, but number one, A, is the association. It's right here in Scripture. And B is, I might stumble somebody. If somebody sees me at an event and I got a few drinks lined up on the table and they're struggling with that, they may look at me and, you know, it's called the the weaker brother gets stumbled. And they start to panic and they say, well, I thought better of Pastor Joe. I might not be getting drunk, but they could be stumbled. And that's something about leadership where we have to sometimes curtail our liberty or our freedom. And the Apostle Paul speaks about that for the benefit of others watching us. Right. It's not always, as you go through this list, you see it's not always easy, and we've, we've, only, been, uh, we've only covered a, full, a few verses so far. Now, should we be legalistic? Somebody says they have a, a drink with their meal. I don't judge them at all. Uh, the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 to Timothy tells him to take a little wine for your stomach. Now, some will make the argument, yes, it was very diluted. Yeah, it was. However, the Bible also says don't be drunk. So apparently you can drink enough of it where you are drunk. So, you know, he also rebukes the Corinthian church for getting drunk and then coming to church drunk. He says, if you want to drink, go home and do it. Don't, you know, don't bring that stuff into the church. You're dishonoring uh, communion with this. Um, you know, so that, that's where we are with that. 
number nine, not violent or pugnacious. Now, if you've been in ministry long enough, <laughs> you'll know people try to push your buttons. And believe it or not, some will try to goad you into a fight. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but if you go onto a search engine and you put church fights and hit enter, you'd be amazed the things that you see. I mean, people are throwing down right inside of a church, you know, pulpits falling down, elbows, fists, and some of them are church leadership. So um, that's a problem. And I'll tell you what, it takes a stronger man to resist his adrenaline urges and not scrap, not throw down, but to show self-restraint. There's also another issue that uh, if I've got pastors who are beating up churchgoers, it's going to be a liability issue and our insurance rates are going to go up. <laughs> but that's not the primary reason. Ten, not greedy for money. Unfortunately, we live in a genre or we live in an age where there's a whole genre of millionaire preachers. I don't agree with it. I have a problem with a preacher who's making millions off the back of Jesus Christ. I don't want to even go there. I don't want to get started on that. But we may ask ourselves, especially if we're in leadership, everything that I buy, everything that I get, do I always have to have the best of everything? Everything I get has to be the best. may have to stop and say, looks like it could be a form of narcissism. Be careful with that. Now, I also couldn't use a gambler, and I believe that's a person who may be greedy for money too, or they just have a compulsive personality. That person can't use good judgment in the church. Um, I know that the, if you do a little study, that the gambling industry supports organized crime, prostitution, um, debt issues, and neglected children. If you're hell-bent on throwing your money away, support a missionary. It'll go to something good, and you'll get eternal benefits for it. See, we live in a society, unfortunately, where we do foolish things, we ruin our lives and the lives of our families, and then we expect everyone else to bail us out. We preach here personal responsibility. Not very popular in our society, but that's what we preach because that's what's reflected in the scripture. Eleven, gentle, mild, appropriate. You see, when somebody comes to you and, number one, a loved one dies or they're repenting over a grievous sin, Okay, this, is, this is a catastrophe. This is a tragedy in a person's life. Or they pour their heart out to you for whatever reason. There's an appropriate reaction that we must have. Because that person is making themselves vulnerable to us. Come into your office, the walls are coming down. They pour out their heart, they could be sobbing, and they all of a sudden have made themselves vulnerable to us. And there has to be an appropriate reaction of how we respond to a person who does that. Caring, appropriate the right type of attitude, you know, being a good listener. Uh, number 12, not quarrelsome, but peaceable. Do we have the peace of Christ? It doesn't mean we don't have our ups and downs, but it means that the world surrounding us sees a peace. They see a difference. In your workplace, it's stressful workplace. It's a stressful environment. It doesn't mean we don't have our down days, but do we weather it well? So do we, are we peaceable? Do we have the peace of Christ? That's very attractive to a non-believer. Now, in the heat of counseling, uh, let's say there's a troubled marriage and there's the husband and the wife. I try to be a peacemaker. You know, I, I try not to egg them on to, you know, to, to stir it up. I'm trying to attenuate it, trying to get it to come down a little bit. 
And there may be times where the husband will say, well, she did that. And then the wife will say, well, he did that. And they're both looking for the death blow, the coup de grace, to take out the other spouse in front of me. And I'll say, listen, stop, stop, stop. Sometimes I should wear a striped shirt with a whistle, you know. Um, I I say to them, I'm not going to think any worse of either of you at the end of this meeting. So let's not try to attack each other. Let's try to be constructive. So we want to be a peacemaker as well. Okay, not covetous. Again, if we're doing ministry for the right reasons, we probably won't become wealthy. That that's just goes without saying. However, we may be at times invited to a wealthy person in the congregation's home, and they might have a lot of really nice stuff. So we need to not be covetous. Now, I've seen it, and it isn't pretty, and maybe not everybody wants to talk about it from the pulpit, but I've seen ministries that are sycophantic that they find wealthy people and they latch onto them and they hang off of them, okay? And that's not appropriate. We're not to be covetous. See, here's the thing. The wealthy person realizes, if they're in your church and you're preaching the word, that their wealth is not making them happy. That their wealth, if they have it long enough, just becomes like everything else that's a fad that is interesting at first and then it becomes ho-hum. I got all the nice cars, I got all the nice houses, I got all the money in the bank. They're looking to us to say that there's something more important. Now, if we go into their homes and we're drooling over everything that they have, that's a letdown. That's hurtful to them, and it's a stumbling block to someone who's wealthy. So we can't be covetous. You know, I do like the Calvary Chapel model that pastors work. They work while they support the church. They learn what it means to earn. And then when the congregation is able to support them, they leave that job and go into full-time, although all ministry is full-time, if you're in ministry, uh, and you, you now continue. But at least you, you did something yourself. You're not just always looking to hang off of somebody else. Number 14, rules his own house well. This is a tough one. Again, as we go through this, we see this is difficult. We're going to get to deacons. We're going to get to the ladies, deaconesses, pastors' wives. That's coming next Sunday. So we're going to end it here with, with verse 7, but there's a lot in here. So the man, the father, the husband, is he the spiritual leader of the home? Now, that doesn't mean that he has to say yes to everything. That's a weak leader who always has to say yes, just so they don't have an argument. Um, is love, service, and attention to his family tempered with discipline, correction, and leadership? Is he teaching and is he leading or is he being led? Is he a pushover on spiritual issues? There's a lot to this. Are his children respectful? Are his children disciplined? But it's obvious that the father is putting in ample love and time and care and encouragement with his children. It's it's a lot to do. Uh, I still remember years ago, Pastor Randy Cahill from Calvary Chapel, Boston said, don't go out to try to save the world if you can't save your own family. Now we know that God saves, but you understand his point. Do we have the courage? Do we have the courage? And I've seen this as well. When our children become adults, and we say, listen, I I feel the same way. My my, uh, son is 12. When he gets older, if he needs to save money, he can live with us. He can, you know, we'll help him financially, help him save. But now if he starts to lead a lifestyle that's dishonoring to the Lord, okay, we put you through college, we, we took care of you, we helped you out, sent you to a trade school, whatever the case may be, and now he goes his own way and lives a dishonoring life. Do we have the courage to confront our children and say, not in this house? 
not in this house. Now, that strikes a nerve with some. And I've been blessed to know brothers, brother pastors, more than one, who have said to their adult children, you can stay here as long as you want, we'll help you. If you're going to continue that lifestyle, you need to leave. You're not kicking them out, you're giving them a choice. They don't have to leave, just lead, lead, lead an honoring lifestyle. Right? It's a tough thing. It, it, it gets close to home when we talk about our children. But, you know, somebody may be having this discussion with me when my son is 18. The truth is that if a man can't rule or manage his home properly, how will he take care of the church of God? It says it right here. See, the Bible confronts us with issues that are right in our face. We don't always like to hear it. Sometimes we squirm when we hear certain things. But the Bible is the truth. It's God's word. You see, a man's family is a microcosm of a future ministry. If it's not working at home, don't export it to the church. It's that simple. Verse 6. Not a novice or a new convert, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. This is the danger of a pastor who's too young, who's too new, who's too green, who's not tested. His zeal or energy, because of his youth, may get him to reach the highest of highs. But you realize we can destroy someone by giving them too much too soon especially in ministry, because Satan doesn't care if you're a, a CEO and you're doing well. He doesn't care if you're great in your field and you get promoted. He pays attention when you're doing great things for the Lord in the church. Then he's going to go after you because he doesn't like that. He really doesn't care how well and how much the unbeliever achieves. He does care, however, how much you're achieving for the kingdom and bringing souls into the kingdom. He really cares about that. So this is a problem. The success may go to their head and they may fall like Satan did. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction. Some people say, oh, pride goes before the fall. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Very important. This was the uh, devil's Achilles heel, and we can see this in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. He had the nerve to say that he was going to be like God, even on his level. Don't, don't, don't get there. Um, I'll tell you some funny stories, and I like to poke fun at myself because I probably made all the, I did all the dumb things you could possibly do as an unbeliever and as a new believer, and I'm still doing dumb things, but hopefully less. Uh, in the beginning, I, I had a general aptitude for knowing the Bible. I could memorize scriptures, I could recall things, I could piece things together. I started to get lifted up with pride. Now, my pastor had the foresight not to ordain me. And he, it sometimes wouldn't give me the time of day. So I was getting frustrated because I would throw hints at him that I wanted to be a pastor, right? You know how we can do that stuff. And I sent him an email, and this was years ago. And I said to him, well, maybe I should just kind of go and do one of those mail order uh, minister kind of things. And he sent me, yeah, I know. <laughs> Ask my wife. She had to put up with a lot back then. Uh, so he sends me in return, LOL. <laughs> That's it. You like that? Now, this is when LOL was relatively new, and I thought, I sent back to him, does that mean lean on the Lord? <laughs> he just ignored me. That was the, you know, he just didn't want to waste his time after that. But um, he had the foresight to see that this was going to hurt me, uh, and he loved me enough to ignore me and me getting mad at him, but that's, that's the way it goes. <laughs> so a few things with this 
Why do pastors fall? You know, I actually was interested in this, and I, I did a little research on it. And I think that one of the reasons pastors fall is because they think they've worked so hard to build something, and nobody appreciates me, so I've got to do something because I deserve it. Or they're so lifted up with pride and think they're so good at what they do that it should be a natural part of what they're doing. And they forget that part about being a servant leader. K.P. O'Hannon, I respect the man immensely, uh, the leader of Gospel for Asia. He spoke before a sea of senior pastors in Maryland at one of the pastor's uh, retreats. And he said to men, be careful, be careful when you think that you deserve something in your ministry. He goes, that's the time that you're going to have trouble. If you look at King David, he was wonderful. He fought the Philistines. He ran from Saul. He was an honorable man. It wasn't until David started to be victorious and God gave him those victories that he even sent his men out to war. And when kings should have been out fighting in the wars, he was hanging out at home, sitting on his roof, looking around. Oh, there's a pretty lady over there taking a bath. Went all downhill from there. Adultery, murder, you name it. So um, that's something to be careful of. Verse 7, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Good testimony outside the church. Now, it's okay if we can make friends in the church, and that's always a good thing, but is, is it true that everyone on the outside can't stand us? I mean, that's a problem, you know? Oh, everybody thinks I'm wonderful in church, but when we go outside, we don't get along with our coworkers, we don't get along with our family, we don't get along with anybody. We're just intolerable. He's saying, this is amazing how God's word hits every single possible problem that we could run into. We need to have a good testimony outside the church as well as inside the church. Otherwise, that's hypocrisy. And Jesus called that out with the religious leaders of his time. They looked really good to a certain section of the community, but they were very hypocritical. They were just doing it for a show. So it's important. We had a... um, (laughs) You know, I only have eight months to go, and then I'm out of the force, which is fantastic. Uh, But, you know, God has really blessed my life and my family. Uh, But, you know, I try to talk to my guys. You know, they're my brothers. They're my peers. And, you know, a lot of them listen. And a lot of them will have asked me to pray for them at, at certain times. But, you know, we bring people in, arrest them for crimes, you know, petty things. And, you know, I when I hear someone come in and they did something really messed up and they go, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I'm like, oh, I put my head in my hands because I feel like all the work I did, um, it's, it just kind of gets broken down. As a police officer, you see the dark side of society. You see the preachers and the reverends and the people doing things they shouldn't do. And they're being brought in and being charged for things they shouldn't be doing. So the snare of the devil is to be so self-deceived Be such a pretender in the church that outside the church we're a different person. That's the snare of the devil. That's how he traps us. Because what is our our design? Our design is to go out into the world. Get out of the church. Go into the world. Be a light to the community and bring them to Christ. Be attractive. Not be weird. Right? So if we're outside of the church and we're being weird, we're missing the point of what we're supposed to be doing. Um, I'm just going to go add a few more things and then we're going to kind of wrap it up for the day. Number one, attendance and accountability. And these are all biblical principles as well. Um, you know, we see, again, in the age of, it's probably because of cable news and TV that, you know, now everybody knows about the pastor and 
in Florida and the pastor in Wichita and all these different pastors who, you know, are being charged with these different things. Probably it's because it's in our face because of news and the media loves it. When they can find something like that, they'll pull it out, whether it's grounded or not. Uh, But attendance and accountability. Did you know how many of you have followed the BTK killer, Dennis Rader? Uh, You ever hear about this guy years ago? Those awful crimes that he committed. Do you know that he was A, an elder in his church and B, the president of the church council at Christ Lutheran Church in Kansas. So he had high positions in the church. And the things that he was doing, if you follow the case, he had a lot of time on his hands. Who was accounting for this man's time? He had these high positions in the church, but he was able to buy the equipment and study how to do these things and spend hours doing these sick crimes. Uh, So I I tell you what, I'm very suspicious of a person who wants to be in leadership and doesn't want to be accountable. Right away, a red flag goes up. You know, we had a guy that uh, wanted to be with our youth, and he was very spotty in his attendance and, you know, didn't want to do what he was asked to do. And eventually, me and him came to a head, and I'm like, don't touch my kids. Those are the, the young lambs that God has entrusted to me. I don't trust you. And that was the end of him. Uh, no, we're not doing that, especially with the youth. We're not doing that. Uh, the second point here that I want to throw in here is First Peter says, be an example, not a lord. In some denominations, the pastor is considered royalty. We don't do that here. We roll up our sleeves and we work and we serve with joy. Um, you know, it w- <laughs> Remember I spoke about restricting liberties? Okay, I mean, could I do certain things that wouldn't be considered a sin? Sure. Would I restrict those things because of my love for the, the congregation and trying to set a good example? I, believe me, I don't always set a good example. Um, and I still sin, so understand that right off the bat. But when we're in leadership, we have to understand that it's a higher calling, and we make ourselves slaves to the Lord. Now, that word slave is an awful word in our vernacular, for, with good reason. We abolished slavery years ago. However, when you're a slave to another man, that's offensive. When you're a slave to yourself, well, that's deceptive. What we don't realize is when we want and we desire, and you know, it can hold us into bondage to sin. Because it's all about me, and I'm self-deceived about anybody else in my life. When we make ourselves a slave to the Lord, it's completely different. Because in a weird way, and this is the irony of the things in the scripture, Jesus says, if you want to be great, you have to be low. If you're low, he'll raise you up to be great. Everything seems to be opposite with the way we think logically and the way the Lord thinks. I submit that his way is better. However, when we become a slave to Christ, we become free. You know, I, I tell you what, just read in that letter... Uh, about Thanksgiving and just seeing the things that God is doing in this church and marriages getting better and uh, people quitting certain addictions and lifestyles, uh, you know, that's, that's stuff, that's joy you can't buy. So when we make ourselves a slave to Christ and we serve in ministry, the things that you'll experience will really literally blow your doors off. Blow your doors off. Mm-hmm. However, some will ask, and, and, and I just, just a few things more. Uh, when you fall, the stakes are higher. When you make a commitment, the commitments are greater, and the sacrifices are greater. So it, it definitely comes with some squeezing and some dying to self. Some today ask me, and let's go back to Timothy as well. Some will say, well, how do you hold down a full-time job, be a pastor, raise a family? And honestly, if I was to take credit for that, I think God would say, You want to take credit? I'm not helping you here. You're on your own. So I'm not stupid enough (laughs) to 
to take credit for that. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I can tell at certain times in ministry when I'm trying to run ahead of him and I fall. And I have to say, okay, Lord, I get it. You know, let's, let's go back to where I, I messed up and let's do this take two. We'll, we'll do this over again. But the bottom line is that whether it's Timothy or, or me or you, God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we, you know, if you said that at work, somebody might think, Holy Spirit, what's that? Maybe they think you're crazy. But do you buy it? I buy it. The Father, the Son, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. He's the one right now that does some of the greatest work in our lives. And if we don't recognize that, we will keep falling and we will keep failing. Understand that. Now, so... Again, whether it's Timothy or ourselves, that power is available to us. And I just want you to pray at the end of the service. Meditate on what is being said today. Meditate on the word as you're driving home and see, Lord, is this something for me? Have I been lacking the desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And is this something that you're calling me to do? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always and It's just such a blessing to see that maybe we look at this and say, oh, gee, I failed in a lot of areas. However, this isn't an elite.